This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Man and a Boy, Teach Me to Be. And the author is Dr. James McBride, and uh, Jim joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jim. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Well, great to have you here. And this book, I guess, sums it up when you say, teach me to be, that sounds like a person is searching for himself. That's it. So tell us about why you wrote the book. Well, basically, I was, I was sitting, talking to my son, and I have a picture by uh, an artist, uh, Greg Olson on my wall, and I looked at it, and it's a picture of Jesus and a little boy, and, and it just reminded me of, of myself uh, fighting authority figures, and Jesus was the ultimate authority figure, and I knew that, that, that I needed to not fight authority figures anymore in my life, but, but really find out what they could do for me and how they could help me and how I could they teach me to be and I could teach others to be. So you grew up in an abusive family? Yes, my yes, my father was an alcoholic, and he would beat on my mother, and I would get in the middle of it, and then he would kind of beat on me. And then he left? Yeah, my mother divorced him when I was about eight years old, and then he left, and, and that, I think, was uh, where I started to really feel like I was rejected by my father, that he didn't love me anymore, and so then I kind of... Uh, rejected all authority figures and people in authority, and you know, and just was a a bad little boy for a lot of years. It seems like in every man there is that little boy trying to find himself. You got it. You know, everybody has gone through different degrees of whatever, and and it has a great impact when you're young. Yeah, to find out the you know the right model that we the right role model that we can find that would help us grow up. So the message that you're trying to say, uh, you know, the right role model. Now that's a key key part of your book, right? Right. So who is the right role model? Jesus Christ. That would be all the way through the book. He's the man. And what I tried to do was I, I didn't think of him as a man living two thousand years ago. I tried to say to my to you know myself what would he be like in the 20th century like right now the 21st century I kept him in the same clothes that he had 2000 years ago but then all through the book I had him play baseball uh run track uh do many different things that a, a father and a son would do nowadays that were a lot different than they were 2000 years ago so in the book I tried to modernize Jesus to what a man and a boy would do, a father and a son would do nowadays. Why did it take you 40 years to find yourself? Why did it take me 40 years? Right. Uh, That's one great question. I think uh, I love to learn. 
and my ultimate value that I believe in is enlightenment. And I and I just I've gone to school uh, and gone to school and gone to school, and and I just want to keep learning and learning. And and my heroes became Einstein and Feynman and physicists and mathematicians. And and uh, and then you know the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And so I still figure I I'm seventy four years old now. And hopefully I'll still have another 10 years to keep learning. So maybe it'll be 50 years before <laughs> I really grow up. Now, you're a psychologist? Yes, I have a master's in physics and a Ph.D. in psychology. Obviously, as a psychologist, you have been down a lot of roads with a lot of different people. And I, I, was, I was a teacher for 45 years, and, and that's the thing of teach me to be that the more I learned, the more I wanted to teach other people. Do people really want to learn, or do they struggle with the unknown? That is something that I found after about three or four years of teaching. You know, when we call it, think of win-win situations, mm-hmm. that my whole idea of teaching was that I wanted the student to know that they were doing it themselves, but I was the one motivating them to help them do it themselves. So it was a win-win situation. The student thought they were winning, and I thought I was winning by helping the student win. Does that make sense, Steve? Uh-huh. It and sounds like, a, 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 you know, obviously a, a great service you provided. Well, I, I still have a lot of, lot of students that still contact me, and, and, um, and now it's, it's kind of fun. And I think what I'll continue to do is, is create a blog or a Facebook and and talk to my, I have 21 grandkids. Oh, my about, goodness, congratulations. Five, pardon? Congratulations. And I have, you know, five or six, and it keeps growing great-grandchildren. And so the book was really a legacy, my legacy to them, that maybe they would know who I was. And also to uh, learn some wisdom along the way. And that's my ultimate value is wisdom, enlightenment. Everything I do is to see if I can't reach that, that higher level of Solomon wisdom. Now you talk about achievements, how important they are in life, even though you say that they're fleeting, but at the same time you say all our achievements in life give us a picture of who we are as a person. Now explain what you mean. What we do is like um, we say to to, to play in a, in, in a game or like be in the Tiger Woods or, or anything like that, we, we want to win. We want to we want to achieve today. But as we achieve today, then we say, okay, now I've got to make another achievement tomorrow. And each time we make achievements, that we get to learn our gifts as who we are as a person because each and every one of us achieve in many different ways. And my achievements have all been in education and learning and, and books and math and science and things like that. But then... If you really don't find out who you are from all of that, you really don't believe in yourself or have the self-esteem or self-respect. And that would be the ultimate, is when you finally achieve self-esteem and self-respect and you believe in who you are and you believe in that there is a higher authority that helps you believe in who you are. Your achievements have to get you there. You also say that many forms of abuse try to tell us that we're not worthy of achievement. Uh, I 
you know, I can sense that in some people I know that seem to struggle emotionally. They never seem to be able to get a hold of who they really are, even though they're doing great things. Right. So that abuse has a, a very uh, dramatic, traumatic effect. Well, just take, I'm sure you've seen office politics, and that subtle abuse that we play in the office, uh, the subtle kind of abuse we, we do to our children, you know, and, and the subtle kind of abuse we do of trying to manipulate other people. I mean, it's all these different kinds of abuse that we do to ourselves and other people stop us from really being who we are and the ultimate idea of, of loving and, and loving ourselves and loving others. And that was one of the things I came to in my book was, how do you really measure love? As a physicist, I can measure mass, length, and time. And we, that's how we measure our world, and that's how we measure our achievements. But then, how do we really measure love? And I came up with the, you know, unto others. For me, how many other unto others, and how much unto others can I do each day to other people? And unto others, it means, you know, love yourself as you love others. So the golden rule is really the measure. Well, that would be the ultimate commandment. The golden rule, I think, is isn't that where... You know, whoever has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> well, that's one uh, definition, but I don't think we're talking about that right no, now. No, we're not. No, we're talking about doing unto others as we would have them doing to us. And, right. and, and that is, can you imagine, uh, the, the, and you do understand, but people really don't understand probably the, the healing power of doing unto others. It's both for yourself and for the other person. And that is a psychologist. That's where my psychology comes in. Is you know how many unto others, or how much unto others, how much kindness and love and affection can you give unto others, rather than just thinking of yourself all the time. So and the more was, you give, the more you receive. Right, and that goes back to teaching. You know that it was my all the way through teaching was a win-win situation, and that was how could I help that student feel like they really appreciated themselves. You know, it was that, wow, I, I did it, you know. So you gave a lot of reinforcement, a lot always. of feedback. Always. It was always, and, you know, the more positive, the better. And, you know, the, the, instead of using the misuse of power that I had as a teacher, it was always, how, what kind of power do I have that I could help the, a student? And I wrote the little ode to power in my book that I have no power over you, nor you have no any power over me, is what we share is the real true power of being person to person. We most often think of abuse, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, but you're talking about just, you know, your, your prejudice or your opinions against someone, or, you know, maybe there's some rituals or traditions that kind of keep people in that terrible cycle of abuse, just emotional abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and just the idea of, you know, like being a basket, I was a coach for many years, and we, you know, like the Dennis Rodmans and that are the ultimate trash talkers in, in basketball, say, you know, that that's abuse, that you're putting somebody else down, you know, so you can win. Now, you also... Say you're, the setting of your book is in a garden. Tell us about this setting in a garden. 
Well, the Garden of Gethsemane would be where Jesus felt, you know, the 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 ultimate misuse of power by the Sanhedrin and and the you know the people at his time. That was their way of abusing him. That was the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Eden would be the ultimate place where, you know, it was perfection, was beauty, and it was uh, a place where uh, you just felt that you were the greatest thing in the world. The Garden of Eden would be that place where it was um, unbelievable tranquility. And then the idea of the, the tree... Uh, and the trees and letting the light filter through, that the subtle ways that the light could come through was learning that would come through the boy. But then I had the man and the boy run out of the garden into the full bright sunshine where at that point that was like an epiphany for the boy, that he all of a sudden the light shined on him and, and that was either the subtle light in the garden or the blazing light when he went outside the garden with the man. And there was the two ways of learning there, the soft, gentle way of learning, and then the strong, ultimate way of, you know, something hit you, and you learned it right then and there. Yeah, we, now, of, we often say uh, the light came on, you know, okay. like they, you know, we finally understand something. Right. The, the ultimate epiphany, you know, of, of oh, yeah, I know, I, I got it. And also in, in Greg Olson's picture is... Um, there's a hole in the tree, and this reminded me of, you know, the, the idea of Stephen Hawking, who is one of my heroes, and the idea of understanding black holes in space and the universe. And there's, that's in the garden. You know, and, and the, the sunlight coming into the garden is the, the, the idea of science waking up the boy, the little boy, that he had to learn all the things about science. And to learn science, he had to learn mathematics. And to learn mathematics, he had to learn languages because mathematics was the language the, that you, you know, learned about the universe. And then time, I really spent a lot of my 40 years, more than that, trying to understand what is time. And I have three or four kinds of time that are in the book. One is relativistic time. Uh, that we get from Einstein's theory of relativity. And another kind is uh, the beginning of the universe was the beginning of time, the arrow of time. And that's the second law of thermodynamics, if you understand anything about like Humpty Dumpty. Once he, I, I tell that little story in the book about Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. And that's the second law of thermodynamics, which says that time goes from order to disorder. And then... The ultimate time was that God is time and God is love. And, you, and I capitalized that time because that is the time we spend unto others, giving to unto others, that God is love and love is time, and the time is what you really spend with other people. So our good works are very important. Good works are unbelievably important. And the thing of it is, is to understand each and every one of us has our own works that we have to do, that we don't duplicate each other, that we all have our different languages that we learn, and we all come from a different place, and, and therefore we have to spend time loving each other, and that's the whole essence of capital time, that how much time and love do we give to other people? 
And that would be the ultimate in the book, that the little boy runs out of the garden at the end, and he understands that he, that the whole essence of time. And I had a place in the book where I talked about a, a watchmaker, and the watchmaker could be either be a deist or a theist, and that had to do with developing time. And I think time is the, you know, when you look at the theory of relativity from Einstein, that that really makes time a lot different. And I don't know how many of us really understand time, and I know I didn't. I don't even know if I still, if I do now. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such an abstraction. Jim, tell us how to get your book. I think you can get it online through iUniverse, and then there's also a link to some of the different bookstores, uh, like um, uh, Barnes & Noble. I guess you could call, they could call me or, uh, online uh, with my, my email address is jamespapadoc, jamespapadoc at aol.com, and I would be more than happy to help people get the book. In fact, I ordered a lot of books for my, for my family, and I gave each one of my family a book, and endorsed it, you know, to each one of my family. Well, that's a great legacy that you've left with them. I would hope so. Congratulations. Well, thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for having me. And hopefully we've had a conversation and it hasn't all been my way. (laughs) Well, no, you've been explaining your book and all your ideas very, very well. Okay, and is there anything else I can help you with, Steve? I'd like to give you some unto others. Well, thank you, but you already have. We appreciate you being here on this radio show. Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot for all. And hopefully, uh, uh, if if you uh, send me your email address, I would be more than happy to send you one of my books that I have here. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was author Dr. James McBride. He has his new book, The Man and a Boy. Teach me to be. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. 
It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginan.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Life and Life Only. And the author is Dave Moyer. And Dave joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dave. Hello, how are you? Now, this is much more than a sports book. Uh, it's going to be uh, a lot of focus on baseball. At the beginning, it's basketball. But you're really trying to portray a real-life story, what really goes on in life, correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, to me, uh, obviously, I've been involved in baseball and enjoy baseball, and I think it'll appeal to, to people who like baseball. Uh, but, you know, there's... There's a lot of music in there uh, because I think that music sheds a lot of light on some of the contemporary things going on in society, and I try to use that as a vehicle to help advance the story. But really, to me, it's kind of about, you know, the American dream and what happens if your dreams die and somehow or another you got to keep on living. Then what do you do? So you're a big Dylan fan. Oh, yeah, you might, you might say that. Uh, That's why he's in the book. <laughs> Yeah, he uh, he makes his appearance in there. He uh, he's Dan's favorite performing artist, and you know one of the things that I, I think is kind of important about that is that you know a lot of people wrote him off, whether that was fair or not. And in recent years, he's probably done some of his best stuff. But throughout all of it, you know, he's just kept touring, kept playing, and kept playing his music. And um, you know, I think there's something to be said for the thing in that you know. You um, you have the idea in your head of what you're trying to do and what you feel you need to do, and you got to go on, and you got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it, and sometimes it's not always the easiest or the best. But uh, you know, the world keeps spinning, and we got to keep trying to figure out how we're going to go forward too. And of course, uh, Bob Dylan wrote about life, so he fits perfectly into your book. Well, to me, yeah. I mean, you know, to me, Bob, now a lot of people think of him as a guy sitting on a stool in the, you know, early 60s with a harmonica, but, you know, he's, uh, most of his themes have to do with uh, relationships and, and love and death and, uh, you know, the, the socio-political stuff is uh, part of it, obviously. Um, but, yeah, you know, he's got a song called It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding, and the main character in the story, Dan, has to try to sort through some of the issues going on between him and his mother. And, uh, you know, the, the title Life and Life Only kind of comes from that song. Uh, and, uh, and I think it kind of fits. I like it. it, it uh, you know, when I thought of how to, you know, what I wanted to call the book, that's when it kind of came together for me about how maybe I could write it and make sense of what I was trying to do. So the main character, Dan, his parents, we first meet them right at the beginning. We get to know them and, of course, their dreams. Tell us a little bit about the parents and how his parents impacted him. Well, you know, the parents, uh, 
they meet in the early 70s at college, and uh, the early 70s at college, for a lot of people, you know, they were blowing buildings up, and, um, you know, that was a tough time for people. And so, you know, they kind of, uh, his dad has dreams of being a, a college basketball coach, and um, the mom is, is kind of more of a practical mindset, and uh, she just kind of develops this bit of resolve to make sure that, None of the stuff going around them ever has any kind of negative impact on their family structure or their kids. And uh, in the process, of course, nothing's ever as easy as it sounds, so the interrelationships between the different parents and their kids and everything get a little complicated, and it you know, kind of shapes things for Dan as he wants to try to move on and live out his dreams and sort through uh, relationships with women and figure out how to... Uh, you know, how to move forward in his life. He kind of forms a, a way of thinking that, like, like I think we all do, that's kind of based on, you know, how we try to make sense of the world when we're little growing up. So Dan grows up in this sports family, but he takes to baseball. Yeah, he takes to baseball. When You know, his dad was a basketball coach, and he was uh, spent his whole life uh, chasing his dad around and, and involved in sports, but at a very young age, uh, you know, it becomes obvious to everybody that he can really throw a baseball, and he kind of becomes one of those child prodigy kind of guys where everybody just starts realizing that he's something special. He's not just some ordinary guy going to play high school baseball, and so he actually uh, gets drafted out of high school and has to make a decision whether to sign a professional baseball contract or go to college, and that's the first, you know, is. You know, he solidifies in his mind his dreams are, you know, he wants to meet a pretty girl like most guys do, and he wants to be a big league ball player like a lot of kids do. And that's the first crossroads of his life right there is uh, making that decision about whether or not to sign or go to college. Well, it sounds like he goes to school. Yeah, he does. He chooses to go down to school at the university. Now, why did he choose that? What was the, uh, what was the reason? Well, um, you know, he hears voices. Yeah, when he goes down to a baseball tournament, down uh, a travel baseball tournament when he's a youngster uh, after his freshman year in high school. And as he's trying to figure out what he wants to do and where he wants to go, he remembers the sound of Southern Girls when he was down there uh, and uh, what that did to his psyche when he heard the sound of those voices. And he said, you know what, I think I'm going to Georgia. I liked it down there and... Uh, um, it, it, it's kind of a little bit of a running gag, the idea of the voices, but uh, if you're from the north and you ever go down south and you're a guy, the first thing you hear is uh, uh, the way southern girls talk, and uh, he never forgot that. So he had, he had a lot of different options at Division One schools and whatever, but he just kind of settled on the fact that he thought Georgia was where he wanted to go. And, of course, life is filled with all kinds of changes, and most of those changes usually occur because of different decisions that we make or the people around us make. Well, yeah, and sometimes, you know, you're, you feel like you're in control of your decisions, but I think one of the things that we all do as human beings, uh, one of my theories, I guess, for lack of a better word, is that we have a tendency to think we can control everything. And I think that's a big fallacy because even some of the times we think we have the best information and we do consciously make a decision, you don't really know that the outcomes are going to be exactly what you, what you would like them to be. And there are also times where, you know, um, uh, different, different circumstances kind of uh, add up to where you don't always have the choices or the freedoms to make the choices that you'd like. And 
Dan starts to find that out after a while, that things aren't always as easy. And, you know, he starts to question, you know, what do I really have control of and, and how, how in the heck can I make some of this stuff work? So I, I, think, I think that's a good kind of a, a strong theme in the book is the idea of how much is faith and how much can we consciously control and, um, um, you know, how, how powerful is the individual in, in a society even a democratic society, you know, we, we, we kind of have this foundation in America that this ruggedness of individualism is, um, you know, the, the, the human spirit can conquer everything. But I, I think that, that as a lot of people go through life, you start to wonder if you're, if you're sold a bill of goods or how true that kind of stuff really is. So Dan has to wrestle with that stuff. And uh, he has some things that he has to deal with in his life that become very complicated. And, uh, he has to try to find a way to go on. He has to learn what to do when the dreams die. Well, I think that, you know, for all of us as kids, uh, you know, we're going to pitch in the big leagues or we're going to play, you know, lead guitar in a rock band and um, be the next Eric Clapton or, you know, and, and whether it's that or the old thing, we used to say we wanted to be the president of the United States. You don't hear too many people say that anymore, but... Um, you know, everybody has these dreams, and, and, you know, boys, girls, they all have their dreams growing up. And uh, at some point, you know, um, all of us, different realities present themselves, and we have to uh, uh, kind of sometimes uh, play the hand we're dealt, and sometimes that means we have a chance to achieve some of the things that, that we hope to, and sometimes it means that uh, that's not going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, it's... Uh, you know, we all have to find a way to deal with it and move on. And uh, I think that some people are able to do that, and for other people I think it's not as easy. So I, I think that is an important thought. I, I really do. I, I think that, you know, in America when, you, when, you're, when you're growing up and it's supposed to be this world of possibilities, what happens when you're one of the 99% of the people that's just an average middle-class person wondering where your next, next paycheck is coming from? You also asked the question, is redemption possible? Now, how does that relate to your theme? Well, you know, I think that uh, Dan, you know, part of his struggles, his mom is, is very Catholic, and part of his struggles has to do with as he encounters all these different disappointments in his life, you know, what is going on with this whole idea of faith, and what is going on with, uh, um, what is going on with, uh, you know, my own future. Is there hope in the future? Is there something I can keep hoping for? And uh, so I think that, you know, redemption, there's a little bit of the religious aspect in there. But also, you know, to me, I guess, um, if, if you have some kind of tragedy in your life, be it a, a minor tragedy or some type of major event that's, that's very difficult, the death of a parent or the death of your dreams or, the, you know, or if your relationships go south or anything. Uh, you know, some people lose their children, uh, you know, a child in life. And some people do things that where they screw up and, and they, you know, um, make some decisions that, that lead to consequences that they weren't anticipating and it's, it's of their own doing. And, and when that happens, you know, when you're in the hole, can you ever really dig yourself out of the hole? I mean... Once you get behind the eight ball, how possible is it to really be able to, to get to even catch up, much less get ahead of the game anymore? Um, 
And so, you know, the whole idea of hope and hope in the future to me is, is very important. Um, and I think that, I think it's very important in society right now because I think, you know, a lot of people have been struggling with economic hardships and, and all different kinds of things. So, um, that's, that's something that I think, um, that's something that I think reemerges over and over in the story. And I think it's an important thing for us to think about. And forgiveness is a theme in the book. Well, it is. It is. I mean, to me, too, again, as I think about things, the, uh, you've got the relationship between the parents. You've got the relationship between Dan and his wife. You've got the relationship between Dan and his daughter. You've got all these different, all these different interpersonal relationships. And, I mean, people hurt people, you know, and sometimes they do it on purpose and sometimes they don't even know they do it. But, um, you know, when that happens, I mean, how do we forgive and let go and move forward in a, in a way where we don't let stuff destroy us and we, um, you know, uh, can, can, can maintain our balance and, and a healthy perspective and some kind of sense of enjoyment and not, um, you know, not let some of these things, uh, I don't want to say wreck us forever, but, but bring us down to the point where maybe we're not the same anymore and, and when that happens, you know, can we forgive people? Can other people forgive us? And, um, you know, I just think that uh, there's a lot of people make mistakes. Uh, everybody makes mistakes all the time. And I, I think that uh, um, in some ways, uh, well, we maybe like to say it, that we are, are, you know, all for second chances in this country. A lot of people aren't always very forgiving. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know... Uh, how any individual person makes sense of that, but I I know that everybody has to somehow, or else I think it can really tear you apart. Dan has a ever changing career, probably uh, not what he ever expected, right? Well, Dan goes through a yeah. Dan gets to the point, you know, really where he ends up having to do things in his life pretty much because uh, he has no choice. He there are things that. There are, there are things that he has to do because of the, the circumstances he finds himself in, and uh, they're not exactly what he had envisioned or thought his life was going to be. Um, and uh, I would say that in that way he's not necessarily um, alone by any means. I would think that, that most people probably um, go through various changes, and not all of them are planned. And that, of course, includes struggles in the family, uh, sometimes unexpected struggles in the workplace. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and I think, in, you know, again, today we've got a lot of people that are um, having various issues uh, with employment. And obviously that weighs on people when they're, when they're concerned about their finances. And uh, we've had for a lot of years now, I think, a lot of issues with uh, um, raising our children and, uh, you know, keeping some sense of community together as families live farther and farther apart. And, um, you know, kids have more and more individual freedoms, whether it's driving cars or the tech, you know, technological devices or whatever else it is. I mean, um, I think, you know, trying to have some sense of community and, and family and, um, all those kinds of things, uh, seems to me to be getting a little bit more difficult all the time. And so uh, all those different changes that people go through, I mean, I think there's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on people, and it doesn't make it easier to keep the, uh, 
the personal relationship strong when all those other things are always at the forefront. You try to leave resolution kind of open-ended. You've got a lot of uh, different, uh, you know, scenarios going on here with Dan and his wife Anna with the, in the workplace, but you've kind of left it open to, I guess, to help us think through the possibilities and what we, we would do if we were in that situation. Well, in a way, yes, because, um, you know, I think the reader is left, you know, maybe concocting or devising their own specific ending as to what they think might happen to the characters. To me, there's resolution to the story, but I also think that I did want to leave some things open-ended because I think that if I didn't, I wouldn't be true to the story. You know, the theme of life and life only and this constant journey and these constant struggles and the constant, you know, uh, enlightenment that that periodically happens and and the highs and the lows and, and all of those things... Um, you know, all of those characters at the end of the story are going to have to go on and live their lives. And just as Dan's life was uncertain for him at the beginning of the story, I don't think there are any complete guarantees as to what will happen to the characters as they move forward. I think there's resolution to the story, but I do definitely think that part of the resolution to the story is getting the reader to continually think about, wow, I wonder what's next for these people. You know, they went through all this stuff, and now they've got to go on and live their lives, which is kind of the point of the story. What's going to happen next? Is, is this good thing going to happen? Is that bad thing going to happen? So, yes, I definitely wanted to leave that out there. Dave, tell us how to get your book, Life and Life Only. Well, Life and Life Only is available through www.iuniverse.com. It's also available through barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. And uh, I also have a website on Facebook, and I have an email set up for the book, uh, lifeandlifeonly22 at gmail.com. And anybody that emails that that wants a copy uh, or wants information about the book, um, wants information about the Facebook page, you know, if there, there are special signings, special sales that I'll do through the author. Otherwise, people that want to order through traditional sources can do that. And, uh, uh, some of the local bookstores in the Chicago area, uh, Read Between the Lines and Woodstock has it on the shelves, and I'm hoping that that will pick up some momentum, too. But I always encourage people, too, if they're going to order the book, to consider going through their local bookstores. I think that's a nice piece of Americana that we want to support those types of people when we can. So there's various ways to get your hands on it, and uh, I, I hope people... I hope people give it a chance and, and like it. I think it's a good story, obviously. I believe in the story, and I hope other people have picked it up and enjoy it as well. Well, Dave, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. All right, thank you. That was Dave Moyer. He is the author of his book, Life and Life Only. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author. 
with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool what Gives is available at WhatGivesBook.com and National Bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Torah Betrayed, and the author is Barbara Kane, and Barbara joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Barbara. Well, hi there. Good to have you with us now. Tell us a little bit, uh, just kind of give us a little general synopsis of the storyline, uh, but we'll go into the details, and then why you wrote it. Okay, well, quite honestly, it starts off very dramatically. It's quite riveting. It starts off in a prison, and our main character, Joseph, is incarcerated there. He got into some serious trouble with a younger man, and in those days, in 1943, um, you were imprisoned for any little sexual escapades that were, shall we say, not to the liking of society. So Joseph starts off in prison, and finally when he leaves prison, he tries to get his life together. Very seriously tries to get a life that is not reminiscent of his time in prison. The problem, of course, is that his past catches up with him, and you wonder... Um, was Joseph living in prison or was the prison living in him? And can he ever, ever get a clean start? So I'm not going to give away anymore. <laughs> sure. So why did you write the book? Why? Hmm. I took a course on creative writing for middle school students. And the teacher kept pulling me aside and saying, you have a gift, you have a gift, you need to write. In the beginning, I thought, she's very complimentary. Ah, oh, she's so She says that to all her students, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But one student came up to me and says, no, I don't even want to share after what you read. So I felt a little intimidated, but when I got home after the course was over, I said, let me sit down and see what's happening here. I'd never done anything in creative writing. I'm a teacher, and I've taught people to write in a very structured format, with some creativity, but not just free-flowing thought. So I sat down. Um, it was a one-week course, and when I got home, I sat down at the computer. At 9 in the morning, I got up at 10 at night. I had written the first 34 pages of Torah Betrayed. Don't know where it came from to this day. I have not figured out anything except it just came through me, and I just just had it happen. So I've that heard, is how I got into it. <laughs> I've heard authors say that sometimes the characters just have a life of their own. 100% true in my case. Um, they just start talking. Exactly. And I think one of the most powerful parts of the book, for me, is that 
I could for one moment be a protagonist, another be an antagonist. I, I could be good, then I could be evil, then I could be sympathetic, unempathetic, and I can go back and forth and show uh, off all the divergent parts of our society and make it exciting and thrilling. And I, You know what? I didn't know where I was going with the book when I started it. I just got so involved in the lives of these characters. It was like they were my best friend. <laughs> so, Joseph, how do you describe his mental condition? What do you call him? I think he's a sociopath. I think he is the kind of person that is so charismatic that you get sucked into a space. And what happens, you get drawn into his macabre plan. He does not want to conform to society. He does not want to do it a certain way. He has his own thoughts, his own ideas, and he goes with them. He really is not in touch with, gee, I hurt this one's feelings, or gee, maybe this doesn't work for my family, as much as he is his own plan, whatever his plan may be. So there are parts in the book and scenes there that even as I'm writing them, I say to myself, hmm, wow, that's pretty dramatic. Wow. Ooh. And then I realized, <laughs> I realized, whoa. Whoa. I, you know, it's like I felt for a moment I was that person and then I was detached from that person because I don't have those traits. And I used to say to myself as I was writing the book, where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> So he's a very smart man who knows what he wants, and it doesn't matter how he gets it. Right on. He doesn't care. But he really cares about one thing, that he looks good. Ah. Or he looks bad. Because if he looks bad in his twisted mind, sometimes that means he looks good. It is very interesting for me. I'm, I'm a teacher. I've been teaching for some 25 years or so. And, you know, students come and go, young students, adult students, and every once in a while you'll see a student who does not conform to the rules. And that's how it is. In life, there's always someone that will crop up in your life or someone you've heard about or someone you know that is a Joseph. Now, the power of the book is getting inside Joseph's head, seeing where he comes from in juxtaposition where the other characters in the book come from. So we, uh, we literally know what he's thinking. Yes, we do. Nobody else does. Right, right. And the, the power of the book is that his exploits eventually catch up with him, and they put a demand on his family, okay, because someone wants retribution for all the atrocities that he has set in motion in the past. And, you know, somebody like this is very arrogant, they feel they could do whatever they want, <laughs> and they can get away with it. And in this case, with a pregnant wife, which is what happens to Joseph, he has a pregnant wife, he sees that he could lose everything that he's struggled for. And uh, it's very confronting. Now, before that, you go into a lot of details about prison life, correct? Correct. I do that. Um, our character in some ways, suited prison life better than he suited 
the life that is where I would call the outside. So he could be more successful in prison than he could on the outside world. Yes, there's a certain structure in prison right. that works for somebody who loves to defy authority. And so, Joseph was just in his prime in there. And so he, he, he knows how to manipulate. Oh, oh, the king of manipulation. Absolutely, you put it well. And not only does he know how to manipulate people, he does it in such a way that they sometimes want to thank him. <laughs> Even people in prison. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you'll see some scenes, some very graphic prison scenes. And by the way, I had these prison scenes read over by someone I know who now works the streets of Ottawa, um, trying to get people into, how would I put it, proper environment, get them off of drugs, get them into um, a shelter, etc. And he spent most of his time, his, his adult life in prison, he read the book, and he says, whoa, powerful. And I thought that was quite amazing, because I know the fellow, and I know how he's turned his life around. And I was so, so pleased then, because, you know, when you write a book and you haven't been in prison, which I haven't, um, and nobody, you know, that I knew personally was ever in that kind of a situation, and you, you're basically channeling all this through you somehow, you, you kind of wonder, am I dead on, or is this a little bit too much? And the answer he gave me was, no, nope, not too much. That's how it goes. <laughs> human nature is human nature, I guess, huh? I, I think you've got it right right on that. So is this PG-13 or more graphic? I think it would be PG, at least 18. <laughs> <laughs> so I would not recommend it. As a matter of fact, I definitely think it's an adult book. It's an adult book. That's it. It is a riveting expose of a man's life that starts off in a prison. And then when he's released and tries to find his meaningful life in society, comes across people from his past, and you get to see that no matter what, you just can't beat the system all the time. So even his wife... Or his his new wife after prison, right? Isn't that yes? Okay, he met her before prison. All They'd right. done some theater things when they were younger, but and they knew each other through the family. And she always had this mad crush on him because he was so charismatic. But you know, he seemed to love the women, and he was a real playboy, and and she could understand that because she had this crush on him. And she heard that he went into prison and he was nasty with some boys or actually young men. And she says, that's not like the Joseph I knew. But what she didn't get is that it didn't matter if it was a man, if it didn't matter if it was a woman, if it was a game plan and he wanted to play the game he played. So she's gets set up, basically. We won't go into how, but he oh, yeah. deceives her. Well, let's just say he tells her what truth he has to to get married. Ah. Uh, well, it wasn't the whole truth. Let's say the lie of omission. <laughs> the lie of omission. So he has, uh, obviously, he knows all the tricks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, real, he's really good. Now, the, the prison encounters are so realistically portrayed in the book that the reader can get in touch with the fact that prison life must leave a scar. I mean, you can't go through some of the episodes that I've 
shown up in the beginning of the book and expect to just walk away and and just say, well, life is a breeze. You get in touch with Joseph and how his sociopathic behavior is trying to um, rationalize everything he does. But once again, you are overshadowed by the prison experiences. No matter who you are, you always carry the prison in you if you've come from prison. And he lives a life of all of his self-centered desires. He has no regrets, no empathy, no conscience, no remorse. You know, every action has a hidden agenda like he did with his wife. And he's got his plans all set up. He knows what he wants and how to get it, and he goes to it with a vengeance. And there's always a good guy. There's got to be somebody to balance this antagonist. 100%. There's two people that I could mention here. One is Isaac, his brother. His brother cannot believe the game that Joseph plays. Now, when you're a child, and we go into this in the beginning of the book, when you're a child, it's okay. Kids are wild. They do crazy things. But basically, Isaac said, Joseph just never grew up. He moved on. Isaac moved on. Family man, pillar of the community. And he wants his brother to be okay. He wants him to carry on the family name in a positive way because this was front page headlines when he landed up in prison. And it really, I'm not going to go into too many details, but what it did to the family and the family business and, oh, my goodness. (laughs) So what lands up happening here is we have someone who is a positive influence saying, this is what you need to do, then I'll give you some money to start a business. Need to do X, Y, Z. So Joseph, of course, does it. And the brother knows he's doing it. But, you know, (laughs) he can't trust Joseph. So what Joseph does is to make himself right in society, he meets the perfect person to carry out his plan. Another wonderfully positive, deliciously sweet woman, Linda, who was in love with him for a long time. She just fell right into his eager little hand. And she does set an example of what's good and pure and sweet. And Joseph sees the sweetness and the goodness, and he sucks it in. He soaks it up. But he also uses it and takes advantage of it. And at the end of the book, you'll find out exactly what I mean. So is there any redeeming value in Joseph at all? <sighs> um, hard to say. In my mind, um the fact that he does try to get a life uh, with a semblance of normal, okay? Um, And he does try to save his family, his Linda, his wife, his child from impending disaster. Uh, Whether or not he does that is another story. But I think underneath it all, he just tends to regress all the time. Um, And I think... He holds that separate from 10 other circumstances which which are negative and destructive. So he may have one or two small redeeming qualities, but the rest of what he does and what he says, that makes him not quite like anybody else, um, is uh, what keeps 
him going, not the way he is in a positive way. He thrives on drama. He thrives on intrigue. And it follows him wherever he goes. Sounds like he believes his own lies. Oh, yes, of course. Absolutely. I mean, he's a sociopath. Sociopaths have their own set of rules. The most challenging part, of course, when I go from character to character, from good versus evil, is that I feel like I'm morphing into different modes of being. It's as if all of a sudden, whoa, that is exactly the opposite of this person or exactly the ideal situation. And the bottom line here is that it was leading me into the characters so much so that I was completely taken over by it. Well, it sounds like we'll we'll have to read the book to find out if good conquers or evil is the final winner (laughs) well i'll tell you it's it's been a thrill to write it it was thrilling for me to see the characters evolve right through me and it's as if i felt they were so real and some of them when i read the book after because when you're writing it it's like you're so there it's like you're not reading it with objectivity i've read it now 25 times in the editing process sometimes when i was doing that I was saying, well, you know what, that's a touch of my dad there or a touch of my uncle there or whatever. And some of the events were events that actually did happen in my childhood, one or two of it, with my father, who was a real little bad boy. So, I mean, you do wonder when you finish writing a book, how much is real, how much isn't. When will this book be complete? When I'm tying up all the loose ends? Maybe yes, maybe no. I got in touch with that feeling, that high when I finished the book. It was like giving birth to a child. It was like I was screaming and jumping up and down, and I couldn't believe it. And I didn't even think I would publish the book. I just did it because I was enraptured with the story. So to let it go was like a high and a low. <laughs> it's like it was over. And I thought, wow, wow, it doesn't have to be. Well, the complete let it go is to tell us how to get your book. Okay. Well, you can, <laughs> of course, go to barbarakane.com and order it from there. That's K-A-N-E. Correct. You can also go to amazon.com. You can go to barnesandnoble.com. And if you are in Canada, you can go to chapters.com. So it's quite uh, simple to do. Well, Barbara, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for having me. It's been exciting to live through my book once again. (laughs) That was Barbara Kane. She is the author of her book, book, Torah Betrayed. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.